The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning. I am glad that you are here. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. Um, As we gather together in this place this morning, uh, let us just take a, a pause, a break, and let us open our hearts to the timeless wisdom of God's Word. Today we will be in the book of Psalms. We take each summer a a little bit of a break through our normal, and we walk through the book of Psalms by uh, kind of picking a different chapter each Sunday. This morning we'll be in chapter 119, Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter of any within the Bible. Don't worry, I'm only covering the first eight verses, okay? We're not going to be here all day long. I'm only covering Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. This, I believe, is a passage that it illuminates the path to blessedness through a deep love and obedience to God's commands. Before we dive into the depths of this passage, let's have some fun. Do me a favor. I need you right now where you're at, not vocally out loud, but internally to count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. This is a hymn that I grew up on. We sang it a lot in the church. Yet it is a a hymn that causes us to reflect and to think. Take a moment, really. Think about your blessings. How has God blessed you? You ever tried to truly sit down and write out the many ways that God has blessed you? You possibly will, instead of ending up with a large sheet of of blessings, end up with a large headache of trying to think of all the ways and feeling like no matter how long and how far you go, you're still missing something. I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's like counting the stars, or possibly it's like counting the number of chocolate chips and a chocolate chip cookie. It's, it's hard to do that. The task seems never-ending, doesn't it? Well, it should. Now, whenever it comes to blessings, we often find ourselves chasing after material possessions or seeking validation from others as form of blessing. We think, if I had a bigger house, then I would feel that God has blessed me. Or... Maybe if I could just get that promotion at work, then I would truly feel blessed. But here's the thing, my friends. True blessedness doesn't come from external circumstances or possessions. It comes from a deep, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father and a heart that delights in His Word. This is the summary of Psalm 119, the whole chapter as a whole a deep, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, and a heart that delights in His Word. Before we step into this text, let's take a moment to ponder this question. Are you truly blessed? Do you consider yourself to be truly blessed? I think that's an important question to ask and to answer, but I think the follow-up question is just as important. Why? What is it that would give you this sense, this feeling of, yeah, I am blessed? Is it because of the 
overflowing abundance in your bank account? Is it because you woke up this morning and you avoided hitting the snooze button one too many times? While those things can bring temporary happiness, true blessedness lies in the unchanging love and grace of our Lord. So are you blessed? How are you blessed? And why? What is it that would make you say that you are blessed? It's a question of value. What things do you value? And where do you find that value in your life? Possibly you consider yourself blessed because you have a full bank account. I'm sure there are many in here that are currently accepting blessings, by the way, from you. If you are blessed because you have a full bank account, there are many, I'm sure, that would throw the hand up and say, feel free to bless me with that as well. Possibly you have a few children that are following after the Lord. That gives you a sense of blessing. Possibly, husbands, this is a great time. Look at your wife and say, I am blessed because of my spouse. I do not deserve her, her beauty, her radiance. Gentlemen, you're welcome. I do take tips, by the way, at the end. You can feel free if that works for you. Maybe you realize that you're blessed because you simply woke up this morning. Have you heard this cheesy expression, every day is a blessing? That's why they call it the present. It's cheesy, I know. Yet, there's a sense of truth to it, that every day is a blessing, because we do have the opportunity just to wake up. Cheese factor is high, but the truth is also found there. So are you blessed? How are you blessed? And the follow-up question, why? Why are you blessed? Have you ever thought about the reasoning that you are blessed? There are some general blessings that our entire world receives from God. For instance, every one of you is alive right now. That within itself is a general blessing. Everybody in the world that woke up this morning, that in itself is a general blessing from God. Just being alive in itself is a blessing. God displays his grace at times to everyone. For others, though, God has given specific blessings. These are probably the things that you've already listed out, the things that you have thought through. These specific blessings are not for everyone, but are designed more for specific people, specific groups, and even for you as an individual. Being blessed is something that I think we all desire. We all, in fact, want the best. In fact, God, our God, he, he's a loving father, and he loves to give us gifts. Before we look at the text of Psalm 119, let's look at Luke chapter 11, 5 through 13. It says this, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, six uh, that's the verse, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Pause, ring doorbells, anybody? Like you can see who's at the door, somebody shows up, your ring doorbell, hey, it's midnight, I need three loaves of bread. What's your response in that moment? Continue. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, God desires to give you blessings. In this text, in Luke, that blessing is primarily the Holy Spirit. However, this verse has been taken out of context so many times, and it's important to say this. Blessing is not based on our desires, but instead is based on what God desires for us. It's an important statement, so let me say it again. Blessing is not based on our desires, but it's instead based on what God desires for us. This is truly what blessing looks like. It's important that we understand what it means to be blessed. Since our text this morning of Psalm 119, it shows the way to blessing. Also, before we begin, notice the humor of Christian ease. We have our own language within Christianity. So you read this word in any context outside of your Bible, and it's blessed. You read it within the church, and we add a syllable on there. It suddenly becomes blessed. This is the language that we use within the church. This morning, I'm going to try to leave it as blessed. Yet, my old Southern Baptist roots will show up, and it will at some point, I guarantee you, turn into blessed. The hymn, Blessed Assurance, only works with two syllables. <laughs> Therefore, it is kind of my innate nature that blessed will continually turn to blessed, and I will apologize now. So with this in mind, let's look at Psalm chapter 119, verses 1 through 8. I already mentioned it. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And interesting, it's written in what's known as an acrostic format. An acrostic um, is where you like list a word vertically and then horizontally, whatever that first letter is, kind of helps you remind it. Most likely in your Bible, Psalm 119, verse 1, right before that is the word Aleph, A-L-E-P-H. That is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you go down to verse 9, um, you will see most likely, right between 8 and 9, Beth. Okay, that's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so on and so forth. This is a, a tremendous way for the Hebrews to memorize this psalm, for them to understand this psalm. Not only is it written in this acrostic format, every single one of these stanzas underneath that title will begin with that letter in Hebrew. It doesn't work in our Bibles, translated into English, but in Hebrew, it makes complete sense. This is often, Psalm 119 is often referred to as the golden alphabet of the Bible, and it's because of this. So let's begin with the first eight verses of this very long psalm. It reads like this. Blessed are those, see, I already wanted to say blessed. I already did. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, 
who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. As you look at this text, I believe it can be broken down easily into three sections. Section one will cover verses one through three, and it looks at the blessings and blamelessness. Section two covers verses four and five, and it looks at the psalmist's views of keeping the commandments of God. And section three covers the remainder, verses six through eight, and ends with a praise as well as provision. We will walk through this text by looking at each section. We begin section one, verses one through three. The psalmist here, he states the exact same thing a few different ways in this section. This is a common thing uh, that we see within the Psalms. We see as well as in just Hebrew poetry as a whole. Repetition is often used. Parents, repetition is often used with children. Why? Well, because it works. It's because we can, we can often say the same thing in different ways or the exact same way and children begin to pick up on that. We are no different. As we read this psalm, there is repetition, and repetition calls to mind what this text says. So what is the summary, then, of this section, verses 1 through 3? Well, I'd say this. The blameless walk in his ways and are blessed. The blameless walk in his ways and are blessed. This is a loaded statement that I believe we need to unpack. So we did a quick evaluation of ourselves just a couple minutes ago, and our blessings. You are blessed. The fact you're here, the fact that most of you are awake, you are blessed. Does that therefore mean that you are blameless? If I read verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Well, not necessarily. Again, blessing is not something that we are owed or we deserve, but blessing is the grace of God. Many of you woke up this morning and you receive the blessing of life, yet there are many within our world who have done the same thing, woke up this morning and received the blessing of life, yet many of them are far from God. Some of them are even against God. This is, again, it's God's general grace and his general blessing. So what then is the psalmist referring to here? I think the psalm is, is not focused on the blessing as much as it is focusing on the one being blessed and therefore walking in the ways of God, which therefore brings about some other type of blessing. This is where we can get very tripped up on a single word within this text. What's the word blameless? What does it mean to be blameless? Well, let's, let's take a quick survey. If you are not blameless, I need you to be seated. Good. Everybody is sitting. Good. Excellent. Okay? None of us can suggest that we are blameless. In fact, we all have sin in our lives and in our hearts. We are sinners 
saved by grace. Don't forget either part of that expression. We are sinners, and we are saved by perfect grace. We are not merely sinners because we sin, but we have been imputed with the sin of Adam. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. John Piper says this about our imputed sin from Adam. He says, the problem with the human race is, is not most deeply that everybody does various kinds of sin. Those sins are real. They're huge, and they are enough to condemn us. Paul is very concerned about them. But the deepest problem is that behind all our depravity and all our guilt and all our sinning, there's a deep, mysterious connection with Adam, whose sin became our sin and whose judgment became our judgment. We are sinners. We are not blameless, yet you are blameless. There's a piece of this which requires us to change our perspective. Have you ever needed a change of perspective? Have you ever been doing a task, and you're just completely stuck. And someone new walks into the room and easily sees what you were unable to see. Possibly you're doing a Lego set and you just can't find that small two-piece that's an orange piece. It's a two-by-one and you just can't find it. And your wife just happens to walk in and instantly is able to see the peace which you've been struggling to find for so long. Why? Well, we can often get stuck with a per specific perspective, and we can often become unable to see clearly. You are not blameless because you have not sinned. You are able to be called blameless because you have taken on the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sees you as blameless and righteous. Why does he see you this way? Why does God see you as blameless and righteous? How would you answer that question? If your response to this question includes any first-person pronouns, you've missed it. Take you back to elementary school grammar. First-person pronouns, I and me and even my. We don't get to say any I's or me's or even any my's on why God sees us as blameless and righteous. The only thing that we could say are hims and he's. We are seen as blameless because of Christ. Right. He has taken our sin, and he has given us his righteousness. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the linchpin of our faith. This is the reason we gather together. This is the only reason that our lives make any amount of sense. These first three verses, they carry a theme throughout them, that if we can get past this word of blameless, the theme is one of walking with God in his ways 
and in his laws. But what are the ways of God? What are the laws of God? That's here. It's found clearly within the word of God, that God has revealed himself to us. This is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us is through his word. This is the way. This is the law of God. Seek God with your whole heart, as verse 2 says. And seek him how he has chosen to reveal himself through the word of God. Notice also how we pace ourselves. The text says uh, that we walk in the law of the Lord. We don't crawl in the law of the Lord. We also don't sprint in the law of the Lord. I can sprint for a short distance. I can crawl for a short distance. I can walk for a long time. There's a part of our Christian life that is slow. It's not as fast as we would hope for. I desire to sprint. Progress, though, is what we're after, not speed. Today, I hope you look more like Christ than you did yesterday. Tomorrow, I hope you look more like Christ than you do today. This is a walk. Walk in Christ. The blameless, they walk in his ways and are blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Unfortunately, this does not mean that we're all going to walk outside and all have uh, brand new vehicles sitting out there for us. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any new vehicles popping up anywhere. I haven't heard any tires screeching. Our blessing is not dependent upon our own desires, but is instead dependent upon the heart of God. The greatest blessing that you might receive is cancer. That might be your greatest blessing. This doesn't seem to be at the top of many Christmas lists that I see. However, it might be exactly what God has in store for me to look more like Christ. Therefore, I would consider myself to be blessed. Blessing might even be something that God uses through you for someone else. You could be simply a conduit for blessing. When you walk in the ways of God, your view of blessings change. A shallow faith will produce a shallow view of blessings. The more your heart aligns with the heart of God, the easier it becomes to see that blessings are not defined by what our culture considers good and successful. Blessings are defined by God. We might not understand the blessing in the moment, and it might not be what we desired. I talked with my brother Herb this morning. They're going through the, the process of house hunting and moving and shifting. If you've gone through that process, it's hard, it's difficult, it's tiring. And brother and I discussed how we want our timing so much more than we desire the timing of God. I like my timing. I always have. My timing is perfect. It's great. It fits my schedule. I get to choose it. And yet, 
my timing and the timing of God are often very different. And in that moment, I don't see it often as a blessing. Typically, I don't see it as a blessing. Yet, whenever I have the opportunity to look back, I can look back and say that was a blessing within my life. You know, I've gone through hard seasons within my life. Seasons where I thought, you know what, I'm done being a pastor. I'm ready to hang it up. I'm, I'm done with this and that. And yet I look back on it and say, God, I am so grateful for that blessing of trial. I am so grateful for that blessing of struggle. Because you have grown me to be who I am today. Would I have considered a blessing at the time? No. I would consider it God's punishment. Yet I look at it now and say, it's God's perfect love displayed for me in a way that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. The blameless walk in his ways and are blessed. Let's look at section two, verses four and five. It says this, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. What has God commanded us to keep? Well, Christ was asked this very question, and he responded in this way. This comes from Luke chapter 10. You can turn there with me if you would like to. It's a, a rather long section, so just keep with me. I'll be in Luke chapter 10, and I'll begin in verse 25 and read to verse 37. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is Christ, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's from this text and others like it that many churches choose to craft and create their mission statement, their marching orders. They will say something along the lines of love God and love people. Very simplistic, very true. Also, notice that Christ in this, verse 27, it, it 
calls the entire person, the entire being, to love God. Every bit of you. It seems very similar, in fact, to verse 2 of Psalm 119. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Also, I love that the people of the New Testament, they are so much like us. We often look at them as old and not as intelligent as us. They are so much like us. Hey, Jesus, you don't really mean like my neighbors, right? I don't really have true neighbors. I don't really know them. And Christ responds with, who is his neighbor? I believe God does mean your actual neighbors. Let me be very clear. I do mean, I think he does actually mean your legitimate next door, in front of you, beside you, neighbors. I also believe it does not stop there and includes everybody that you interact with. Love these people. Show them the same mercy that Christ has offered to you. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Let that be our heart. Let that be our cry. Section three ends with verses six through eight. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This text ends with a resolve. It ends with worship. And it also ends with a plea. First, resolve. The psalmist declares that he will fix his eyes on God's commandments. He will learn God's rules. He will keep his statutes. Do you have the same resolve? Do you truly want to know God greater? Can you speak these same words? Is it written upon your heart? Have you prayed this same prayer? When was the last time you laid before him? Just expressed your desire to know him more. When was the last time you asked God to show himself to you in a greater way? When was the last time you had to rely upon the spirit of God to reveal to you the will of God? My fear today, church, is that we do not have the psalmist's resolve. My fear is that we will walk out of these doors this morning with nothing being changed. My ultimate fear is that we don't desire to follow what God requires of us. That's my fear. That we know of God, we know of his word, yet we choose specifically to ignore it. This is my fear. Is that we do not desire to follow what God requires of us. And in fact, I know that it is true. I can prove it. 
When was the last time you shared the message of the gospel with someone far from Christ? Notice I didn't say you invited them to church. That is important. Don't get me wrong. I guarantee you, every Sunday, as long as I am still a part of this elder team, the gospel will be presented faithfully from this stage. However, there's a difference in inviting someone to church and inviting someone to Christ. When was the last time you spoke with someone and showed them their own sin, told them how they can place their trust in the perfect salvation of our loving Savior? The churchy word for this is evangelism. The Bible is full of calls for us to do this. In fact, what we just read in Luke is known as the greatest commandment to love God, to love your neighbors. This might be the most loving thing that you can ever do. I would say it is the most loving thing that you could ever do. Share with them the message of the gospel. We also have within the, the Bible what we call the Great Commission, where Christ specifically tells us to go and make disciples. This is what God tells us to do. Do we have that resolve? The statistics would say no. We do not have that resolve. Lifeway Research found a study, did a study in 2019. And what the study shows is on the left, 55% of people have not shared with someone how to become a Christian in the last six months. This is staggering. I firmly believe that we do not have a knowledge problem. I firmly believe our problem is resolve. We have not, as the psalmist has, set our paths in line with God. I grew up in a church that uh, is actually my father-in-law, and he says this. There are many times whenever I will preach, this is him speaking, where you might not be able to say amen. The reason is because you're too busy saying ouch. This is one of those cases. As we look at this, we say ouch. So what? What changes, though? We can look at stats. We can look at these bar graphs and say, wow, that's terrible. What changes within our own hearts? What changes within our own lives? Do we walk out of these doors once again unchanged? Do we act like these stats don't matter and don't, don't have any effect? God calls us to do this. What is our response? Romans 10, 14 through 15 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Yeah. This is you. 
preach the good news. Our resolve, though, must come from a right heart. It's not a resolve out of guilt and shame. It's a resolve out of joy and love for what Christ has done for us. This is where our worship, I believe, comes in. Praise God with an upright heart. Do you know your Savior? Do you know what your Savior requires of you? Do you see all that he has blessed you with? This should, in fact, cause us to worship our Creator and our Savior. Our text here finally ends with a plea. We are unable to do anything apart from God. The psalmist understands this in light of his worship and in light of his resolve. He pleads with God to not forget him. Verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You are sealed with the very spirit of God. But at times, you, you might feel that God is distant, that God is not actively present and here. The psalmist feels this. The psalmist feels the potential of him, the psalmist, being far from God. So what does he do? He asks God to be near to him, to remember him. may it also be true of us. When God feels distant, let us fall on our knees and ask God to change our hearts. God is not distant. We might understand that. We might not feel it at times. It's not that we need God to, to come here. There's a modern song out there that I do not like where it invites the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. I want you to know, he doesn't need your, your invitation to be here. He is here. We, we don't have to invite him here. He is here. The issue is not him and his location to us. The issue is our hearts. And God, I do not feel like you are near. Change my heart. Change my feeling, my emotions. God, change what I perceive because I know that you are here with me. It's a perfectly fine prayer to pray. To summarize these first eight verses of Psalm 119, I'd say true blessedness does not come from external circumstances or possessions. True blessedness comes from a deep, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father and a heart that delights in his word. To end our time together, I would love to uh, just take a moment and, and tell you a, a story of an early Christian missionary that experienced the blessings of God, not how he would have chosen to receive them, but he still was receiving the blessings of God and had a life of following Christ. This guy is, is by the name of William Carey. William Carey from 1761 to 1834. He was an English Christian missionary. And he's often referred to as the father of modern missions. If you're looking for some summer reading, 
Uh, there are a number of biographies on William Carey. I highly recommend them. They are fantastic to read, to hear his struggles, to hear his resolve. William Carey, he played a significant role in the establishment of what's known as the Baptist Missionary Society, and he dedicated his life to spreading the Christian message in the country of India. His life was marked by remarkable perseverance, as well as numerous difficulties, which he overcame with unwavering determination. One of his greatest oppositions and his greatest difficulties was the opposition that he faced within his own religious community. In the early 19th century, the prevailing belief among many Christians was that foreign missions were unnecessary and futile. Carey had a passion for spreading the gospel in foreign lands, even while he was met with resistance and skepticism. Despite this discouragement, Carey persisted in conviction, and he devoted himself to studying languages, particularly Bengali, in preparation for his mission. Financial struggles, another hurdle that Carey had to overcome. He faced tremendous challenges in raising funds for his missionary work. He often had to rely on his own meager income and his limited resources. His commitment to his calling, though, was so strong that he famously stated this, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. His perseverance in the face of financial hardship and his ability to inspire others, it ultimately led to the establishment of what still today is known as the Baptist Missionary Society and financial support for his mission. Once in India, Kerry confronted various cultural, various linguistic there's social barriers. He endured the loss of loved ones, including the death of his first wife and several children due to disease and difficult living conditions. What's the resolve in those cases? He faced opposition from traditional religious leaders, and he encountered societal norms that were resistant to change. Despite these challenges... Carey pressed on, advocating for education, for social reforms, as well as for translation of the Bible into local languages. His greatest achievement was this, was the immense contribution to Bible translation. Recognizing the importance of communicating the gospel in native languages of the people that he served, he painstakingly translated the Bible into multiple Indian languages, including Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marathi. His work, it laid the foundation for future translations and became a modern-day model for missionary linguistics. His perseverance and his determination to overcome the difficulties he's encountered, it left a lasting impact on the history of Christian missions. His example, it inspired countless others to follow in his footsteps. And his legacy continues to shape the field of missionary work to this day. William Carey's life, it serves as a reminder of the transformative power of perseverance in the face of adversity and the enduring impact of a steadfast commitment to a noble cause. In addition to his perseverance and his difficulties, his life exemplified the profound understanding 
that true blessedness does not stem from external circumstances or possessions. Instead, it emerges from a deep, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father and a heart that delights in His Word. Despite facing numerous challenges, Carrie's joy and his contentment were not derived from worldly success or worldly comfort. He found his true comfort, his true fulfilling, and his unwavering faith, and his profound connection with God, his reliance on prayer, and his constant seeking of God's guidance were central to his missionary endeavors. He recognized that his strength and his purpose came from a personal relationship with his Heavenly Father, which sustained him through the hardships he faced. His commitment to the Word of God, it was a cornerstone to his life and to his work. He believed in the transformative power of Scripture, and he dedicated a significant effort to translating the Bible into these local languages. His heart delighted in Scripture. He recognized the ability to bring light and salvation to those who would hear and understand. His understanding of true blessedness, it, it extended beyond himself. He sought to share the gospel and bring others into a relationship with God, enabling them to experience the same joy and the same fulfillment that he found. He was guiding himself and others towards a deeper understanding of God's love, and the blessings found in relationship with him. William Carey's life, he demonstrated that true blessedness transcends external circumstances and material possessions. It arises from an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father and a heart that delights in his word. I tell this story because William Carey was a normal man. There's nothing really extraordinary about William Carey. There's nothing truly special about him. He was following after Christ. He was following after what he believed the word of God called him to do. It is out of this obedience that he received many blessings. He had a tough task. It was not easy. For many years, he saw very little fruit, if any, from his work there. Yet, because of his resolve, he persevered. May our lives reflect this same understanding of blessings and a connection to a deep and intimate relationship with an ever-present and merciful Heavenly Father.